2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as our God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 to 10. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, while three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds to charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could, not find, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt or negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors had all agreed that the king should, have, should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room with a window open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done, be done before. Now, verse 19 to 27. At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. He came near the den. He called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I, have found it, I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and all the peoples, every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. 
He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Today we find ourselves at the end of a short series that we've been working through, looking at the first few books of the book of Daniel. And it's a book that, as you know, was written two and a half thousand years ago or so, about these guys that have been picked up from Jerusalem, taken off into exile to the superpower of their day, Babylon. And we've been trying to ask ourselves, what do these chapters have to say to us as Christians living here in 21st century Britain at a time when the wind of change seems to be against Christian thinking and Christian ethics, and ultimately us as Christians? What can we learn from it? And we're here in chapter six. I guess it's probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Um, And I think this chapter is supposed to make us ask at one level, how would we react if we found ourselves in that situation? Would we, like Daniel, behave in the same way? And honestly, I think the answer for many of us would be, I don't know, I don't think I would. And so I'm hoping that we can delve into the chapter and find some areas of hope that give us some good news despite our names, despite the fact that there's a Daniel preaching, there was a Daniel leading, most of us are not Daniels, right, when it comes to this passage. In fact, I would want to argue that most of us are more Diego than Daniel. And by Diego, I mean the footballer, Diego Maradona. And I don't mean that we've all got, it's his left hand, the hand of God. What I mean is, well, I don't know if you've seen this recent documentary film about him. It's very interesting because what we learn from the film is that actually there's two people in one when it comes to Diego Maradona. There's Diego um, and his family and friends describe him as being loving and kind and affectionate and gentle. And then there's the Maradona that most of us have got to know, um, aggressive, vindictive, addictive. He was two different people in two different situations. And I don't know if you know people like that, people that seem one place in one, like one person in one situation and like another person in another situation. Perhaps you just need to look in the mirror to see somebody like that. Because what's true of Diego Maradona is true of me, and I think true of all of us, that we all have, like Diego Maradona, a character and personalities that are flawed. And not just a little bit off kilter, but completely and utterly selfish and unkind and unloving and often unlovable. The Bible calls this sin and tells us that because of the first sin committed by Adam and Eve, we're all born sinful. A famous Anglican prayer says, we sin in thought and word and deed. Now, maybe that feels familiar. We're all Diego Maradona's. It's not often, I don't think, that the Bible and Lady Gaga, the singer, agree, but they both say we're born that way. And we have to get over the idea that it's everybody else who's a pain in the neck, who's irresponsible, unhelpful, unlovely, and so on. It's us. Famously, the author G.K. Chesterton was asked by the Times newspaper, what's wrong with the world? And he replied, I am. He understood this biblical principle of original sin. But there is some hope, and that's what I'm hoping today to highlight three bits of good news and one bit of what I've called not such good news. And here's good news number one, which comes from that first passage we had read to us from 2 Corinthians 5. If we're Christians, we're new creations. 2 Corinthians tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And verse 20, we are therefore ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. Jesus is the only person ever not to be that mix of Diego and Maradona. But he took all our Maradona-like sinfulness on the cross. And that means there's nothing that we can do and nothing we have done to earn a clean bill of health before God. Simply by trusting in Jesus, we are, if we're Christians, new creations. And verse 20, because of that, we're ambassadors for Jesus. People who are seeking to live for Jesus, to represent him, to bring him glory, to make him known wherever we live and work and play. But the question is then, how are we ambassadors? What does that look like? Now, in my mind, I hear the word ambassador, and what do you think I think of? Look at my age, think of adverts. What do you think of Chris? What do you think I think of? Ferrero Rocher, of course. But that's not what the Bible has to say. So I wanted to look at Daniel chapter six, because good news part two is that in Daniel, we have this excellent example of what it means to be an ambassador for Jesus. Now we've seen, haven't we, in our previous uh, look in the book of Daniel, how Daniel, despite being in exile, despite having every excuse to resent the situation he finds himself in, is seeking to bring salt and light to his situation. He doesn't withdraw from the kingdom. He doesn't um, circle the wagons, but he also doesn't give it this unquestioning loyalty. And here he is in chapter six. He's an old man by now, but he's still trying to represent God. He's still trying to demonstrate godliness in this Babylonian empire. And I want us to notice two things about Daniel, which will help us to understand what does it mean to be an ambassador for Jesus. So firstly, in verses three and four, we see Daniel's excellent character. He distinguishes himself through his hard work and his integrity. Verses three and four tell us he's incorruptible, he's diligent, he's effective. It actually says he has a spirit of excellence. Now, that's a pretty good description then of how we as Christians ought to try to live our lives. Are you incorruptible, diligent, effective? Do you do everything you do with a spirit of excellence? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, contrasted Daniel's behaviour with some characters, which I think all come from the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, here, here they are. He talks about Lord Time Server, somebody who changes their views and opinions to fit the times. Lord Fair Speech, somebody who speaks kindly but hides deceit in their heart. I like this one, Mr. Smooth Man, someone who says what people want to hear. Mr. Facing Both Ways, someone who attempts to gain favour by agreeing with everyone. Or Mr. Anything, one who will believe, say or do whatever it takes to achieve their personal agenda. One if any of those ring true with you. Would your colleagues describe you as someone who will do anything to get ahead at work? Or would your family say that you say one thing about someone to their face, but at home, you should hear you? Or about your friends, would they say that you only ever say what people want to hear and you'll never deal with conflict or controversy? Friends, if we want to be ambassadors for Jesus, we must have integrity. Um, that word gets used a lot. Uh, so here's a definition from the dictionary. Integrity is the act of behaving in an ethical, moral, honest and honourable way, even when you know that no one is watching. Now, do you remember when we looked at Ephesians 6 not many weeks ago? 
Nigel told us there that we, uh, it says that you serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Nigel, I think, said we're working before an audience of one. What integrity means is that we behave in the same way all the time, even when no one's watching, because we're working and living and playing and relating for God. So when we're asked to fiddle our hours for client billing, what do we do? When we're at home and tempted to tweet something not very nice about somebody behind the cover of Twitter, what do we do? When you're working from home, but spend the afternoon watching the test match, or tempted to, what do we do? What does integrity look like in those situations? And to those of you in position of leadership, you think, well, that's okay, because I'm not answerable to anybody directly. It does count for us too, whether you're in leadership at home, at work or at church. Here's a quote from Pastor Paul Tripp. Leading by manipulation or intimidation is not the lifestyle of an ambassador. Failing to be, get this list, failing to be patient, self-sacrificing, tender, loving, forgiving, humble, serving, gentle, faithful and kind is a failure to lead as an ambassador of the Saviour King who sent you. It's pretty tough. Maintaining integrity, being self-sacrificial, being willing to look, be looked over in order to make more of other people and more of God, being willing to make a stand for what you know is right, is really hard. It's costly. And it might result in uh, losing personal comfort, being looked over for promotion, being dropped from a friendship group, and so on. But as Christians, we have to keep on making the choice between our own comfort our own freedom, our own self-fulfillment, or God. That's part of what it means to be an ambassador for Jesus. So Daniel had this excellent character, but I also want us to notice something else about how he lived his life as a godly witness. He knows which king he follows, and he's bold in doing it. Bob Dylan says, you've got to serve somebody. And we all follow a God. And the question is, which God is it will we follow? Who has our loyalty? Daniel here in this chapter is being asked to choose between the king and his king, God. Which kingdom does Daniel really believe that he belongs to? Which king has his loyalty? We've already seen from the book that Daniel doesn't shy away from being part of Babylonian society. So we're not being asked to become hermits, but he does have some lines in the sand. Remember in chapter one, it was about eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And here, it's praying to the king and not his God. He's being asked to portray the most fundamental relationship, the most important relationship in his life. And Daniel isn't willing to do that, even if it costs him his life. And when Daniel knows what this new rule is, when he knows he's going to have to make a stand, even to death, do you see what he does? He goes and opens his windows and prays and asks God for help. Through his actions, through his words, he shows which king he's following and which kingdom he really believes he's part of. Whether he used words like, oh, God beyond all praising, I don't know. But I'm sure the sentiment was there that whatever happens to him tomorrow, God will be there for him. Now, as this whole sermon or series of sermons to be preached about the priority of prayer in Daniel's life, but for now, I just want you to look at verse 10 with me. There's this little phrase. Um, it might say, as he did previously, or just as he'd done before, in your version. 
It's a key phrase in Daniel's life. It reveals his heart. His response to this challenge he was facing was reflex. Because when opposition arises, when times are tough, we can really see what's going on in our hearts. An Australian pastor, Stephen McAlpine, I really like this phrase. He puts it like this. He says, we need faithfulness locked away. You cannot take out of the bank what you haven't put in. Or closer to home, Trevor Archer, former pastor at the road, down the road in Chessington. I remember him talking about us being like sticks of rock, seaside rock, that um, when times of trial come, it's like we're broken in half and you can read what's written through you. I hope most of you, all of you are old enough to remember sticks of rock where it's got writing through the middle. How is Daniel able to lead such an excellent life, make a stand when he needs to, not compromise, maintain integrity, keep on being an ambassador for God? How can we do that here in Chessington and Epsom and Yule? Well, Daniel has this lifetime of faithfulness behind him. Just as he'd done before, he kept on praying. If you were to cut Daniel in half like a stick of rock, I think what you would read through him would be what his name means. God is my judge. Daniel consistently lived as if that were true, as if God were his judge. And wouldn't we all live so differently if we believed that to be true? If it wasn't so much that we were concerned about what our friends and our colleagues and our bosses and our school friends think, if we were less concerned about how others saw us and more concerned about God and his reputation and how he sees us? What if we were to keep our eyes fixed on the heavenly throne and not on the shiny thrones of the things of this world? When we truly grasp how God sees us, then we can live and work and play with freedom. Freedom to be honest and loving and hardworking and have integrity. But here's my next point, and it's what I've called the not such good news, although it's a biblical principle, so I, that might be not a great thing to have called it. But anyway, the not such good news when we seek to have a character like Daniel's of excellence, when we seek to follow Jesus with boldness, when we choose to pursue, pursue righteousness and be ambassadors for Jesus, it will inevitably lead to tough times, even persecution. Look at verses four and five. We have these administrators, these satraps, and they all assume that Daniel will have a skeleton in the closet because they all have skeletons in the closet. But when they realise there's no 800-pound wallpaper scandal to be found, that's as political as I'm going to get, uh, their hostility flips. And now, rather than thinking, well, we don't like Daniel to be above us because he's like us, now they don't want Daniel to be above them because he's not like them. And they get even more resentful and have to scheme up something religious to trap him with. And they knew exactly how Daniel would respond to this new law they were persuading the king to introduce because of how consistent Daniel was in his faithfulness to God. The same pastor, Stephen McAlpine, puts it like this. He says, sneaky move and smart. Daniel may serve the court of the Persian king, but they know, the satraps know, the king that matters to Daniel is God. They knew that the king that mattered to Daniel was God. Do your friends and family and colleagues and neighbours know that of you? What would read through you if you were cut in half? Do you have faithfulness in the bank? There's something about Christians that the rest of the world ought to find strange. 
If we seek to faithfully and loyally and boldly follow Jesus, then people around us won't really be sure what to make of it. And very often that will lead to being shunned and overlooked, seen as strange, and ultimately persecuted. But did you notice how Darius responded to Daniel? Because not everyone will behave and react in the same way that the satraps did. If we live as ambassadors for Jesus, that can be extremely attractive. Daniel's godly lifestyle was attractive to Darius, and Darius trusted him to the degree that he appointed him as one of these three senior administrators above the satraps. And ultimately, in verses 26 and 27 of our chapter, Darius issues this incredible decree that in every part of his kingdom, people must fear and revere the God of Daniel. Darius recognises that God is the eternal, living, rescuing, miracle-performing God. And that's what we want for the people of Epsom and Newell, isn't it? We want them to know the eternal, living, rescuing, miracle-performing God. If we're going to point people to Jesus, we don't need to be perfect. We can't be. But we do need to live lives worthy of our calling. We do need to be consistent and bold in which king we're following. And when we do that, when we're ambassadors for Jesus, some people will be attracted to Jesus, but others will seek to bring trouble our way. And that brings me to good news part three. It's my longest point, but the most important. And that is that Jesus is the better and ultimate Daniel. It's good news for those of us, including me, that have been listening to me talking about Daniel's integrity, his great character, his prayerfulness, his willingness to make a stand for God and feel somewhat of a failure? What is the good news for those of us that say, yeah, I do try to be hardworking and incorruptible and honest, but too often I find myself telling little lies to make myself appear better than I really am. Or those of us that rarely face being shunned or overlooked or teased or persecuted because we so rarely speak up for Jesus, or who rarely bring salt and light of Jesus into the situation in which we find ourselves. What about those of us, all of us perhaps, who despite being new creations, really think that we're much more Maradona than we are Diego? Well, one of the problems I think of this passage is that it's so famous that we can fall into the trap of it being about daring to be a Daniel. That this passage we can hear says something like this. God shut the mouths of the lions, so if you're good and courageous and emulate Daniel's character and his excellence and boldness, then God will take care of you as well. It's a quid pro quo, cause and effect. God will shut the metaphorical mouths with the metaphorical lines in your mouth, so long as you're like Daniel and nothing bad will ever happen to you. But if you're not bold and not courageous and not incorruptible and so on, then woe betide you. Friends, gritting our teeth to be better, braver, bolder people doesn't work. And it's not what Christianity teaches. That's religion. You rub God's back, he'll rub yours. Our relationship with God isn't built on our performance. It's entirely built on Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Now, of course, as Christians loved by God, we want to be great ambassadors for him. We want to follow him with courage. We want to glorify him whatever the cost but this passage cannot be about telling us that if we're bolder for Jesus then God will make sure that nothing ever harms us because if that was the case what about the thousands and thousands of Christians 
through the centuries who've died, sometimes literally at the mouths of lions because of their faith. You just have to read the newsletters and emails from CSW, the charity that we support at the church or other Christian organizations, and you'll see that Christians are suffering terribly around the world, even today. Are these people simply just not good enough? Are they not daring enough? Are they not praying enough? And look at Jesus. Jesus trusted God more than Daniel. He was more innocent than Daniel. He certainly had more integrity and excellence than Daniel. But look what happened to him at the cross. And Jesus is very clear, isn't he, that the people he came for were not the good people, but the people who know they're not trusting God enough. Now, this passage has to be about more than being a model for how God deals with suffering believers or how, like Daniel, we're supposed to, st- supposed to stand firm under trials. The passage does help us with that, but at the heart of this passage is a foreshadowing of a verdict, a foreshadowing of a verdict that will be delivered by God on the final judgment day. Look down at verse 22. Do you notice how uh, Daniel says to the king, my God sent his angel. And do you remember that God also sent an angel to the furnace in Daniel chapter 3? An angel that looked like a son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've often wondered, why didn't God send the angel before those three men were thrown in the fiery furnace, before Daniel was thrown into the lion's den? Why didn't the angel intervene earlier? Well, I think it's because here we have a picture of the fact that the law must always be fulfilled. The punishment for breaking the law must be carried out. Someone has to take the punishment. And so through the angel in the furnace in chapter three and the den here in chapter six, we have a picture of the son of God, this pre-incarnate Jesus facing the fiery flames, facing the roaring judgment of God in those lions on our behalf for our sin. There's Jesus, the truly innocent one, taking the punishment for our law breaking our sinfulness. You see, Jesus is the better and the ultimate Daniel. Like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused by his enemies. He was brought before a ruler, sentenced to death. He was handed over into a pit. But Jesus didn't just suffer the threat of death. He went down into death itself. And although he was innocent, he suffered the fate of the guilty. And there was no angel like there was for Daniel there to protect him and comfort him. He was utterly abandoned by God. And just as the den became this place of rescue and deliverance for Daniel, when Jesus came from the tomb, he brought deliverance and rescue for all of us who are joined to him by faith. In verse 20, Daniel's able to say that he was found innocent in God's sight. And Christians can say the same thing because of Jesus's death and resurrection. This den is a place of rescue and of good news and of hope. But it's also important to notice that there's also judgment in this passage. Look at verse 24. The king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children and their wives. And there was no angel to rescue and deliver them. It's a glimpse of the divine punishment that will one day fall on all those who have spent their lives opposing God and opposing his kingdom. God always delivers his people and judges his enemies. He did it at the flood. 
he did it. Do you remember when at the Red Sea, when he gave his people a dry path to walk through and the waters flooded in on the Egyptian army? He did it here at the lion's den and he'll do it one day to come when Jesus finally returns and restores his kingdom in all its fullness and God will restore his people and judge his enemies. But there's nothing special about the people that Jesus saved through his death and resurrection. Christians like you and me are sinners who consistently cave into the demands of this world, who recognise that we're all this mix of Diego and Maradona, that we all need rescuing from the den of sin and death that we find ourselves in. But thankfully, that rescue doesn't depend on our ability to dare to be more like Daniel, but solely on Christ's perfect obedience in our place. And when we know this to be true, we can face difficulties that we find with more confidence. So we don't have to face debt and financial troubles just with more stoicism. We can look to Jesus, the ultimate Daniel who paid our debts. We don't have to face loneliness just by giving ourselves a pep talk. We can look to Jesus, the ultimate Daniel, who was cut off from God so that we can draw close to God. We don't have to face disease just with a stiff upper lip. We can deal with disease because the ultimate diseases of sin and death have been defeated by Jesus, the ultimate Daniel. And when we're persecuted, when we lose our jobs, when we lose our friendship groups and our status or our family, we don't have to face that without hope. Because in Jesus and through Jesus, the ultimate Daniel, we know that it's not the end of the story, that scorn and disgrace are not without hope. Daniel chapter 6, we see this old man walking around with lions. It's quite funny. And we're supposed to cast forward to that final day when the lions will lie down with the lambs and God will bring about the new heavens and the new earth that he promised. So how do we live as Christians in 21st century Britain? Well, we can remember we're new creations. We can remember that we're ambassadors for Jesus. But Mostly, we need to remember that our acceptance by God doesn't rest on our ability to be more like Daniel, but what Jesus, the ultimate Daniel, achieved on the cross. We have to turn our eyes on Jesus, the Lion of Judah, who's dealt with all our sin and all our compromises and all our failures. So that like Daniel, we can say, it doesn't matter what other people say about me. God is on- and only God is my judge and he's my king. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, He finds me innocent in his sight, and one day I will bow at his throne forever.